Some of you have probably been to Stanmer Park and you've been around the back of the home farm near the, um, the house, posh hotel, and there's an orchard, old orchard full of old apple trees, full of these old kind of Sussex varieties of apple trees that you don't see anymore, with these kind of weird names. Eastbourne Pippin, and the White Hawk Wonder, and things like that. <laughs> the Moorscombe something. On a summer's day, it's nice to go to that orchard. Blue sky, sun shining, lie back in the grass with a picnic blanket and a picnic, a beautiful girl, children frolicking in the grass, a horse in the paddock next door, apples on the trees. When I, in these dark days, I reminisce about the summer and my days in Stammer Park Orchard, a philosophical question came into my mind. You probably think I'm a bit, where's he going with this? Is an apple tree an apple tree because it produces apples? Or does it produce apples because it's an apple tree? Does the type of fruit determine the type of tree? Or does the type of tree determine the type of fruit that tree bears? I was going to do a poll. I think uh, I'm not going to do that. Hands up. Surely it's the latter, isn't it? The type of tree is what determines the type of fruit. The fact that a tree bears apples proves it to be an apple tree. That's what makes it an apple tree. That's not what makes it an apple tree. The apple tree is an apple tree. By nature, it's an apple tree, but it bears apples because it is an apple tree. The fruit is the visible evidence of the type of tree, but it does not make the tree what it is. God has hardwired into the tree, into its very genetic structure, the ability to produce apples if it's an apple tree. And everything, the roots, the bark, the structure, the branches, the leaves, the blossom, are all geared towards producing apples, which is the most natural thing for the tree to do, the only thing the tree can do. What's inside the tree makes the fruit, something deep within the tree itself. Imagine one day in Stammer Park, I'm there with the kids, and Daniel spots a pineapple hanging from the tree. Nice, juicy pineapple. I could send Daniel up to get it, and I could have it for tea. What if you saw a pineapple hanging on an apple tree in an orchard? Such a thing would be not just you know, a freaky kind of thing. It would be scary. It would be you know, impossible, an impossibility to have a pineapple hanging from an apple tree. When you see apples on an apple tree, you're, you're in no doubt about what kind of tree it is. Science cannot change that. So I suppose it might be possible to kind of genetically modify a tree to produce a different kind of fruit. But as far as I know, it's not actually possible to do that. In order to do that, you'd have to change the very nature of the tree itself. I thought about this. Perhaps if you could produce a kind of tree that produced different kinds of fruit, you'd be a millionaire. So you go to the garden centre and you see an all-purpose tree being sold. And you could program that tree in the spring to produce whatever fruit you wanted that year. But we know that this is like realms of fantasy, isn't it? It's not going to happen. I'd be very surprised if it did. It's absurd to imagine a tree like that. An apple tree produces apples because it's an apple tree. In the book of Galatians, Paul is using a very common biblical picture to describe what the Christian life looks like. So he talks about fruitfulness. And today we're going to look at something to do with the heart of the gospel, what God wants from people. 
And I've, as usual, I've written reams and reams of stuff. Some of it I'm going to go through quite quickly because I haven't got time. I could speak a whole series on just this passage alone. But let me say this. A Christian life, a Christian living by faith produces fruit which is observable to other people and to the person. Fruit comes from the character of a person. It's observable. It reveals what they really are. Fruitful behavior does not make a person a Christian, but the fact that a person is a Christian produces fruitful behavior, just like the apple tree. It's something which comes from within the person. It's not something you can kind of just put on the outside. God plants a certain kind of tree and he expects a harvest from that tree. That's the only reason you you plant apple trees, isn't it? Because you want a harvest. I remember Anya's uncle in the Ukrainian village, he pointed to this big apple tree in the village center. He said, look at that tree, It's it's an apple machine. It's laden with apples. That's why you plant apple trees. You want fruit, don't you? God takes his people and he says, I want you to be fruitful. And the only way you're going to be fruitful is if I change the inside of you to make you fruitful. Now, to introduce this theme, I want to look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Just two verses, Galatians 5, verse 6, and then chapter 6, verse 15. Keep your finger in the place. Paul says this in chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Just flick over to chapter 6, verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. And these two verses sum up the heart of the argument. So as Paul has shown us, Paul has talked at great length about circumcision. And he says that circumcision is irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised, if you're Jewish by birth and upbringing. It doesn't matter if you're not Jewish or a Gentile. Those things are totally irrelevant. Circumcision is completely irrelevant to the argument about salvation. What is important is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, the faith that a Christian has is not just some kind of passive belief, but it it has an outworking in the life of a believer that can be observed by other people. What counts is a new creation. It doesn't matter. It's almost as irrelevant as your hair color or something like that. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you've been circumcised. So what if you have been? What's important is that you have faith. What's important is that you are a new creation, that God has done a work in you to make you new inside so that you bear fruit. The Holy Holy Spirit makes a person a very different person from what they were. Now, in Galatians 6, sorry, Galatians 5, verse 16, Paul says this, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What is this uh, sinful nature? Paul is talking about. Well, it's a horrible Greek word, ugly words. I think it's the word sarx, S-A-R-X. And it talks about a very ugly phenomenon. The sinful nature is that part of us which is inherited from Adam right down through the generations for our parents, which makes us um, sinful and do the things which are opposed to God. Sinful nature is the part of us which is um, intent on self-gratification, on sin, and as I said, it's inherited. It's something that we're born with. Even the youngest child has the sinful nature. 
In verse 19, Paul talks about some of what he calls the works of the sinful nature. These are the kind of visible manifestations of a life which is controlled by this sinful nature. And this describes humanity. So he talks about these things which Anya read. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I don't think Paul means this to be an exhaustive list of all the kind of things that the sinful nature can produce. But he's he's probably talking about his own context, the kind of things that were most visible and evident in the cities where he was working. But if we're honest, it's not difficult to see these kinds of things being manifested in Brighton, is it? And uh, I'm sure in every culture, in every part of the world, these things have been manifested in a certain way, perhaps with different cultural variations, but deep within, these things are surfacing all over the world. So we've got kind of different categories of sin here. So you've got sexual kinds of sins, immorality, false religions, the, the occult, witchcraft. You've even got substance misuse, so you've got drunkenness and personality issues as well. So you've got factions, dissensions, the kind of fruit of a person that is just full of hatred and selfishness and self-gratification. Tim Keller was writing about this and he said that a lot of the things that the flesh desires are not bad things in themselves. It's not necessarily wrong to have a sexual desire or to have a desire for food and comfort but he calls these over-desires, inordinate desires, where these things become so important, it's like a pull on the flesh. I must have this now and be satisfied right away. I cannot possibly wait. It's like with children. Yeah, children want to be gratified straight away. They cannot. They haven't learned yet the skill of waiting to, be, to receive something. They need to eat now and have this now and that now. That's why they make so many demands. But the flesh, that wicked, sinful part of us, which is opposed to God, demands these things and many other things which are wicked, which God hates, which the Holy Spirit is opposed to. Now, I don't think Paul is saying here that every non-Christian exhibits all these characteristics. I mean, when I was a non-Christian, I certainly wasn't into witchcraft, and some of these things I never did. But these are the kinds of things that you would expect to see amongst unregenerate people who are controlled by this sinful nature. Praise God that God hasn't given us over completely to the absolute fulfillment of all these, all these lusts. Imagine if God, if everybody was grasping after all these things all the time, it would be a really horrible society to live in. People do what comes naturally to them. When I was younger, I wanted to be a conservationist, and I actually studied environmental studies at university. Some of you are probably surprised I even went to university. Well, I did go to university, and I studied environmental studies. I used to like watching Attenborough, you know, David Attenborough on television, and I wanted to be like him. David Attenborough makes a nature film about a mountain gorilla in its natural environment. The mountain gorilla does what comes naturally to the mountain gorilla, eating leaves and rampaging through the jungle, or whatever it does. That's all it knows, that's all it can possibly do. That's all it's ever done, that's all its parents ever did, that's what it's hardwired into it to do. Its natural environment is conducive to that kind of behavior. In this building last year, last summer, I was here for the Pride Festival. I wasn't celebrating the Pride Festival. I was here trying to reach people with the gospel in this building. People came in, a a very mixed bag of people, flaunting a lot of these kinds of things that Paul condemns here as acts of the sinful nature. 
Last week we talked about freedom. It was, it was for, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. You know, this city flaunts its freedom and celebrates freedom. But actually, I, w- I want to put it to you, this city is by and large enslaved to sin. There are lots of good things in this city. There are lots of positive things which we can celebrate. But the freedom that this city celebrates is by and large something which God would be very, very concerned about and angry about. People consider themselves to be free, don't they? Actually, they're completely enslaved by sin. You know, the saddest thing of all is when you see somebody who knows they're enslaved by sin. People come in, they're so broken by it, and yet they still can't pull themselves away. They go back to it time and time again. And I, you know, I don't think there are any non-Christians here. If there are, I want to ask this question. Do you really think that what this world offers is better than what God promises in his word? Observing the lives of Christians, which we're not perfect, none of us are perfect... Do you really think this, this list here is, an, is a kind of inaccurate list of what goes on in society? And do you really think this is preferable to what God offers in his word? So I, I don't think it is. I don't think you can really say that. You know, this message in our city, be who you want to be, be yourself. Well, that's okay, but it's not okay, is it? Because what if the person you want to be is not a very nice person? That's the last thing you want to be, actually. Because it will ruin you. Now, look at verse 21. Second part, Paul says this, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what's the answer? Presuming you want to inherit the kingdom of God, what do you need to do? Do you stop doing all these things? Stop getting drunk? Control your temper? Destroy your idols, destroy your you know, tarot cards or whatever you're doing, messing around with. Try and be nice to your wife. Will that get you into the kingdom of heaven? This morning, Phil was telling us about Luther, and I love that word, monkery. He was, he was a monk of the highest degree. Luther was absolutely scared about his eternal destiny. And his solution was to to work harder and harder, as Phil described this morning, to try and please God, to try and show how sorry he was, that perhaps God might be merciful to him and forgive him. That was his solution. Luther was aware that these things were wrong. And his his way to try and deal with that was to to beat himself and do all these, these terrible things to try and please God. But I want you to imagine a very different scenario. I want you to imagine a young man I'm going to call Tom. Tom lives in Brighton. He's not based on a real person, just in case you thought he was. Every weekend, Tom goes out with his mates, and they go drinking, they go boozing it up, and they go to what people call you know, a gentleman's club, which probably should be called a pervert's club. That's the highlight of Tom's week, going out with his mates, getting drunk, and going to this club. So if it was like an Attenborough nature program, you are seeing Tom and his mates in their natural environment doing what comes naturally to them because they're controlled by the sinful nature. Here in Coalition Nightclub, you see the male unregenerate homo sapien in his natural environment. Now, I'm not picking on nightclubs particularly. There's lots and lots of places where sin can be indulged. But Tom enjoys, he indulges the sinful nature. He thinks nothing of it. 
Imagine one day Tom somehow heard verses 19 and verses 21, and he got a little bit concerned about his eternal destiny. And Tom says, well, you know, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be lost. I want to be in the kingdom of God. So what does he decide to do? So he goes through the list, and he starts saying, well, I can deal with that. I can deal with that. I can deal with that. And he goes to church, and he adopts a kind of Christian life. He stops doing all those things that are listed here and goes to church and does all the rest. Friday night comes, his mate picks up the phone and says, Tom, are you coming out with us tonight? And Tom says, I'm sorry, I can't join you tonight. I'd love to, but I'm not allowed to do it anymore because I'm a Christian. Have a good time and tell me about it on Monday. Look forward to hearing all about it. Tom goes home and he mopes. That's what he does, he sulks and he mopes because he can't go out anymore. He'd rather be with his friends in the club, but he has to toe the line to get some reward from God to avoid something nasty. He hasn't actually sinned. He hasn't actually done anything really wrong, but his heart is not in it. And he's actually a pitiful figure, isn't he? Because he's not at home in the world anymore, but he's not at home in the church. He's stuck in this kind of awkward halfway house and he's not happy in either place. Tom is actually enslaved to a kind of law. He might not be like Luther, beating himself and doing all this kind of charitable stuff, but actually he's enslaved to the law. His heart is not changed. Basically, he still desires the things of the flesh, the sinful nature. He's not full of the grace of Christ. He's got no desire to please Christ. He's willing to do the bare minimum to try and get something from God. And the focus of his Christian life, such as it is, is how well he obeys. Has he done enough? Has he done the bare minimum to be accepted as a Christian? He's ticking boxes. His religious life is like a legal transaction. I'll do this, A, B, and C, and God will reward me, I hope, in a certain way. He wants to get something or avoid something. His Christian life is not about a relationship with a beloved person, beloved Lord Jesus. He's actually in bondage and restriction because he's prevented from doing the things that he really wants to do. You know, he might become a Pharisee. You know, he might be very good at doing what he does, but he never produces things that the Lord really wants. The fruits that we'll come back to in a short time. Tom's Christian life, such as it is, brings him no joy. The question is, will he last the course? Will he still be a Christian in 10 years' time? One day the cost will seem too much. The pleasures of this life, the things that his flesh, sinful nature desire will be much more appealing than the kind of, as he sees it, pie in the sky one day going to heaven. And like a dog returning to its vomit, sorry to use this horrible biblical expression, going back, he'll go back again, be drawn back to what his heart always did desire deep within you know, he'll be worse off than he was at the beginning. There was never any inner change. There was never any real repentance. There was never any, any real faith. It's impossible to sustain such a Christian life in the long term. It's easy to whitewash the tomb. Remember Jesus talks about whitewashed tombs. You know, on the outside they're beautiful. In the inside they're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Very easy to whitewash the outside, make it look beautiful. You know, reform your outward life. But actually inside, you're just the same as you were before, unregenerate and far from God. 
if we try to disciple people who are not regenerate, I'm talking about, when I say regenerate, I'm talking about people who've got the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside. If we try to disciple people like that, we are fighting a losing battle. It's like flogging a dead horse. You know, you can cajole them, you can encourage them, you can persuade them. But sooner or later, they're always going to fall back to their default position. One of my favorite films is My Fair Lady, based on a book by um, George Bernard Shaw. Pygmalion, isn't it? In that film, it's like Cockney flower girl, Eliza Doolittle, meets an um, erudite and rich man. And he has a bet, and he says, I can turn this, this young lady, this, this girl, into a posh lady and pass her off as a kind of, I think it's a duchess or something. So he, he trains her, he teaches her to speak properly, gives her elocution lessons, and he dresses her up in the kind of finery, and they go to, to Royal Ascot, I think it was. And if you've seen the film, you remember what happened. So when the horse, her horse wins the race, or I think it doesn't win the race, but she shouts out, all that learning, all that kind of fine speech goes out the window, and her cockney accent comes back again, and she's exposed for what she really is. All that was kind of smokescreen, a facade. I was just thinking that film's got a, got a song in it as well, Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man, which is a question I grapple with every single day. But sooner or later, the true self comes to the surface. Take an apple tree in Stanmer Park. You could go up there, go up a ladder, hang it with lemons. Stick lemons in the branches. Someone might come along and say, look, a lemon tree in the orchard in Stanmer Park. It might be a bit simple to think that, but... That tree might look like a real lemon tree, if you didn't know any better. I mean, lemon trees look different by their shape anyway. But those lemons are not the real fruit of the tree. They're not produced from within the tree. Sooner or later, the real fruit of that tree is going to emerge, the apples. And the lemons will just kind of drop off, because they'll go rotten, because they haven't got the vital life of the tree inside of them. As I said, so a person can reform their outward behavior to fool other people, to fool themselves, to try and please God. But actually, the true self will come through sooner or later, like the apples. The law, the Old Testament law, can restrain people's behavior, but it cannot change the human heart with its lusts. Think about the law of our country, the law of the land. The law is not concerned about your heart attitude. What the law is concerned about is obedience. So the law doesn't care. I, I can think all day long about something I see in a shop in London Road. I want to nick that thing. I want to steal it. I want to break that window. Put a brick through the window and take that thing. Expensive watch. I can fantasize about doing that. But if I don't actually do that, the law has no quarrel with me. I'm not going to get a copper coming around, knocking on the door and banging me up in the police station. The law, doesn't, the law can't change my heart. My heart can be absolutely wicked, intent on bad stuff. As long as I don't transgress that law and actually act upon it, that's okay as far as the law is concerned. But the heart is not changed. Where do we get this idea from that God is concerned just about outward obedience? The law could have done that. The Old Testament law had every, every ability to control people's outward appearance and behavior. Some people have this deluded idea that somehow you can sort of pay your dues to God, tick a box, and then go home satisfied and live just how you like. We know that's not true, don't we? You know, now and again, you pay God your dues and you give a bit of money to the church and you might come at Christmas and somehow God will help you out when you need him and you might go to heaven as well when you die. 
I remember in a church I went to once, there were a load of, uh, in this church was a very traditional church, and they had a lot of kind of rules about dress codes. Thank goodness we don't have that in our church. So in this church, women had to wear skirts of a regulation length, just below the knee, like that. And they had to wear little headscarves. Very pretty. And, you know, if a minor transgression in that church, if you, if you kind of wore a skirt that was a little bit too long, a brawny woman would come with a ruler and measure your leg and measure the skirt to make sure it was long enough, pretty much. You know what, you can, you can have a kind of group kind of behaviour like that. And let me say this, it is right, absolutely right, that women dress modestly in church. But you can enforce that by rules, but it must come from the human heart. A heart that desires to, to bless other people and not be a temptation. And to dress in a, in a way which is modest and honourable. You know, in some of those churches, there was so much gossiping and pride going on outside. It didn't matter. All they were concerned about was outward appearance. I'm not saying everybody was like that in that church. That's why ritualism is so wrong in churches. You know, I cannot stand ritualism. It's the worst thing in the world. Ticking boxes, doing certain rites and thinking that God is pleased with you. It's a pathetic shell of Christianity. And it's disgraceful and the world hates it. You know what people think about Christianity? Most people think it's like, you know, having to do the things I don't want to do and um, not doing the things I really want to do for a kind of pie-in-the-sky reward that doesn't even seem as tangible as the things I see all around me, which I want even more. That's not what God is looking for. What happens when someone becomes a real Christian? Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. This is talking about a one-off act, which happens when a person becomes a Christian, but it's talking about also about a daily process which goes on in our Christian lives. Let me tell you a different story about Tom to illustrate this, the same person. So Tom is living according to his sinful nature, but one day the Holy Spirit starts to do a work in his heart. The Holy Spirit starts to draw him towards Christ. Now, for some people, this is a long process. For some people, it's a very quick process. Think about this. The Holy Spirit does a mighty work. And suddenly, Tom is concerned about the sin that he once enjoyed. He starts to be, that's a weird thing. I've never been concerned about this, but suddenly, I feel polluted by this. He feels guilty for his sin. He starts to realize, you know, he's heard the gospel somewhere. Perhaps, you know, I brought judgment on myself, not just because of what I've done, but because of who I am. The reason I do these things is not because I'm a kind of basically a good person who sometimes does wrong. I'm actually a bad person. I might be good compared to some other people, but actually I've fallen desperately short of God. That's why we do bad things, because we are bad. We're corrupted, and it manifests itself in our acts. And Tom is concerned about this. I'm not just, you know, I'm a bad person. I've broken God's law, and it separated me from God. And look what it's done to me. And more than that, look how it's grieved such a wonderful and holy God. Because God now is starting to loom large on his horizon. He's starting to see this God I've despised and ignored is actually the most precious, important thing in the whole of the world. So he hears and he receives the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. And he is saved by grace, by faith, through faith. He knows he can't save himself. He's saved simply by faith in Christ and by his finished work on the cross. And he's sealed for eternity in God's kingdom. Do you see the difference? There's actually a real heart change going on. 
You know what? He rejoices. He is grateful to Jesus. And then that lifelong work begins, which Phil mentioned, sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit over a lifetime to make Tom more like Jesus Christ. This is inevitable. It's going to happen. If you're converted, you will be sanctified. Maybe two steps forward, one step back, but you will be sanctified. You'll be made like Jesus Christ over your lifetime. Tom is no longer dominated by the sinful nature. He's now dominated by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus Christ. He's not the finished article. He's still tempted by sin on a daily basis, but he has decisively turned his back on it once and for all. He begins to dislike sin and see how destructive it is in his life and the lives of people around him. And he begins to see, get a sense of how displeasing it is to his beloved Lord. Tom does not see turning away from his sin as restrictive. He sees it as liberating. It's like, that sin just ruined me and separated me from this wonderful God. I'm only too glad to be free of it. He understands the bondage his old life brought him into. Tom's heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need lots of laws to restrain his behavior. Yes, he needs to be taught. He needs to learn the word of God. He needs to be guided by the word, but he doesn't need laws to restrain him because his heart has been changed. That's what it says in verse 18, doesn't it? If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Tom is now being led by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is setting the course for his life. You know what? The Holy Spirit will never lead you into sin. I remember once I heard about a, a Christian man who said, the Lord has told me to divorce my wife and go off with another woman. The Lord will never tell you a thing like that. The Lord is consistent with his word. If his word condemns it, then it must be wrong. That's a delusion. You know, friends, God's commands are not burdensome. I'm not saying it's easy to obey God's commands, but they're not burdensome for a Christian. Because something greater than the law compels us. We're not compelled by, you know, it's fear. We're not compelled by trying to keep God's commands for some kind of reward. We're compelled by love and by the Holy Spirit. Godly obedience to the Christian becomes the normal state of affairs. The tree has been changed from within. The very structure of the tree has been changed to produce a different kind of fruit. Imagine if you took that mountain gorilla, David Attenborough's gorilla, and somehow by the, the mysteries of science, you could change that gorilla into a polar bear without changing its outward form. Suddenly, that, that creature will find its natural environment has become hostile. The jungle is, is an alien place for the polar bear, and its behavior is not suited to that environment. When I became a Christian, I remember I went through a very big change in my life. Almost automatically, I went through every aspect of my life, or well, not every aspect, but as many as I could think of, and tried to bring it into line with God's word, and it wasn't a burden, and it wasn't a struggle. It wasn't like I was reluctant to leave my old life behind. It wasn't like, you know, goodbye old friends, you know, thank you for the good times, stay in touch. Do you remember in the book of Acts, those people brought their scrolls to be burned, those valuable scrolls, because they were ungodly. They weren't saying, that, oh, well, what a shame, I have to burn my scrolls. They were happy to get rid of this, take this vile thing away from me, because it's ruining me and it's separating me from God. When somebody becomes a Christian, they should not be bargaining with God, saying, God, I'll, I'll be a Christian if I can keep this, and this, 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 this. I reserve the right to this. 
So no, Lord, it's all yours. Now, it may be that sacrifices can be hard to make. Sometimes giving up sin is difficult, isn't it? I'm not saying it's easy. But what I'm saying is when you become a true Christian, there's that work inside of you which makes it less burdensome. I looked at my sins when I became a Christian. I realized how they defiled me. They ruined me. You know, after that, the Bible did not become a list of rules, things to be obeyed in kind of this grim obedience. I, you know what? When I was a young Christian, I could not wait to read the word of God and find out how to please the Lord. I couldn't do enough to please him. I wanted to serve God. And obeying, obeying him came easily in those days. No sacrifice was too much. My attitude in those days was not, have I done enough, but what more can I do for you, Lord? You know, every night of the week I was down to church, my old church. I was witnessing to people automatically. I was reading the word. I was sharing the gospel. I was serving. I could not wait to do it. Now, over the years, if you're not careful, you can lose that. And I certainly struggled after that. I'm not putting myself up there as a paragon of virtue. It was all the Holy Spirit working in me. It was automatic and inevitable. Now, after I became a Christian, the temptation to go back to the old desires did come. But the general course of my life changed. I was now led by the Holy Spirit. You know, praise God, I've been led by the Holy Spirit every day of my life since then. Through many blunders and failures and sins, but the Lord has led me and kept me. Because I'm his, by faith. You know, for a Christian, sin is unnatural. It's not the natural state of affairs, pleasing the flesh, the sinful nature. It's unnatural, it's an aberration. You know, a true Christian is being made holy and is like Jesus Christ, and Christ is now Lord. When I was uh, first courting with Anya, um, I was very much, you know, in love, and nothing was too much to ask for her. She could have asked me to get up at four o'clock in the morning and, you know, go and get the groceries or do whatever she wanted. I I would have done almost anything for her within reason because I loved her, and I love her still. You'll be pleased to know. You know, Jesus has done so much for us that we should be in love with him. We're bond servants of Christ, but you know that's not a burdensome thing because he's bought me at a price by his precious blood. The greatest satisfaction and fulfillment of the Christian life is to obey the Lord, or should be, the highest purpose we were created for or recreated for. Boaz, you know Boaz, he told me about a thing in in, uh, his culture called a bing. Now, bing is the Chinese word apparently for a soldier. And a bing is is a young man who is infatuated with a girl. Um, Matt's like, he knows about this. This this young man is infatuated with a girl that doesn't love him. And this boy basically devotes himself to the service of this girl and says, whatever she says, I'll do it because I want to please her and impress her. So she'll tell tell him to go out in the middle of the night to get some food, he'll go and, and do it, you know, and she's just using him and manipulating him. Now, as Christians, we, we should have that same kind of devotion, but it's not to a manipulative, horrible kind of girl. It's actually to the Lord who has bought us and loved us. We should have that devotion. Lord, I'm like your soldier. Whatever you send me, I'm totally devoted to your service because I love you. That's very different from keeping laws, isn't it? Ticking boxes. We're talking about a transformed heart. We're talking about holiness. For a Christian... The attraction is not just avoiding going to hell and the the blessings of heaven. The attraction is that we love Jesus Christ, that he has become the supreme desire of our hearts. 
how I wish that he were more so the desire of my heart. So often my heart is divided. Think about it. The Son of God sacrificed himself for us. A man gave his life, an innocent man, so that we might live. And this is the Son of God, crucified, risen, glorious. Is anything too much for him? You know, friends, real, real Christians are self-sustaining. What I mean by this is, you know, sometimes with Christians, you're not quite sure where they stand. You have to kind of constantly encourage them. And once they're, when, when they're around other Christians, they, they're okay. If you were to put them on a desert island or to take away all their Christian friends, you doubt, would they still be able to sustain their Christian life? Because it all seems to come from outside. You know what, friends? When the Holy Spirit does a work in somebody, you don't have to keep on chasing people up. You don't have to keep on cajoling people and encouraging people. I mean, obviously, we do need to encourage each other anyway. We all need that. It's not like a losing battle. It's not flogging that dead horse. So imagine a church where you, you didn't have to constantly encourage people and remind people to do stuff. You know, come to communion, come to church, come to the prayer meeting. Imagine a church where people were queuing up. Just you try and stop me coming to that prayer meeting. People were mad keen. Why? Because they love God and love his people. But you know, it's true, isn't it? The flesh pulls on us, doesn't it? It pulls us back. We don't always feel like doing the right thing. You know, friends, church is not like a Butlins holiday camp. You know, once I stayed at Butlins, it was probably the worst holiday I ever had. There was a big fungus growing on the wall of my chalet, and the walls were paper thin. You know, Butlins, the thing about holiday camp, everyone's like laughing, dossing around. If you want to go to the pool, you can go to the pool. If you want to go to a knees up, you can go to that. Whatever you want to do, you can go on the beach and sit there in the rain. <laughs> Which we did. You know, the church is not like some kind of 1950s military kind of national service army camp with a sergeant major. The church is none of those things. It's not about, you know, soldiers in the 1950s, they didn't want to be there, did they? They didn't want to get up at the crack of dawn with a sergeant in their face, you know, telling them to go and do, a, do a, you know, exercises or whatever, square bashing. But the church is not supposed to be a place where we like butlins, we just doss around and enjoy ourselves and relax and take it easy. Because we just, it doesn't really matter. The church is actually a place full of beings. Remember that. Devote is the service of the one I love. We're soldiers, but we're not soldiers in that army camp, reluctantly. We're soldiers because we want to be there, because we love our Lord. Now, oh, time flies, doesn't it? One more page. Let me get this out, because I feel this is for the law for us. Christians are not to be motivated by guilt. And I don't want people to go away and feel guilty and say, oh, I ought to do more, do this. It's not about that. It's not about guilt. It's not about just a sense of obligation, things I don't really want to do. But there is a right sense of duty and obedience in the Christian life, a conviction. There's a very fine line between that. You know, not, I don't want people to say, oh, I feel guilty. I should go to the prayer meeting because I feel guilty for not being there. But there is a sense that you know, I know this is the right thing to do sometimes. My heart wants this, even if my flesh doesn't want it. I love my Lord and I love his people. And I'm willing to sacrifice my own comfort for the sake of the kingdom. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should drag yourself out of bed if you're very, very ill and drag yourself to the church. But I, th- I think sometimes we do need to get a bit of this back, don't we, as Christians, about you know, sacrificing our own comfort and our own ease for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of commitment, for the sake of duty. We're soldiers. We're not holidaymakers or butlins. We are soldiers of the king. We're those devoted people because our hearts have been changed. 
I think we need to listen to some of our excuses at times, the kind of pathetic excuses we make. We're so addicted to ease, aren't we, and leisure and the kind of easy times. You know, there's not a law. We're called to be free as Christians, but not to live a life of self-centered indulgence. If we struggle to do the things that we know we need to do, Christian duty, commitment, perhaps we need to look at the cross a bit more and look at Jesus and say, Lord, my heart's grown cold towards you and towards your people. Lord, please awaken that in me again, that love for you and love for your people because I feel it going cold. The cross is the right place to look. You know, friends, we do need to be encouraged. We need to encourage one another, urge one another on to do these things. It's the loving thing to do. Now, just quickly, sorry, sorry, guys. It goes on too long, doesn't it? Verse 21 again. Verse 21 is not calling us to external moral conformity, saying if you do all these things, you're going to get the kingdom. And it's not saying you need 100% obedience to be saved, but it's a warning to those who use their freedom as as kind of license for immorality. And what he's saying here is a warning. If you consistently live a life which is indulging the sinful nature and you're not even concerned about that, you have to question, are you really a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Has Christ really got your heart? Because the evidence points to the opposite. Having said that, there is a very real struggle in the Christian life. and We've just run out of time. Verse 17 talks about the struggle between the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. Now, in this battle, the Holy Spirit has the upper hand. The Holy Spirit has won the war. But there's still that flesh, that that remnant there within us, which is fighting against us and dragging us back. And that's what it means here, I think, in verse 17. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. That that has two possible meanings. One, it could mean that the Holy Spirit in us is compelling us not to do the things that our sinful nature would cause us to do. Or it could mean just the opposite. Sometimes, deep within, we want to do the right thing to honor God. And yet, the flesh somehow pulls us and makes us do things that we don't want to do. Both of those things are true. So that encapsulates the battle that will always be there for a Christian. And I would love to preach much more about this, but I can't. There's some comfort and help in verses 16 and 25. Look at this. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. In verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I'm just going to read this out rather than try and comment on it. Living by the Holy Spirit, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, what does it mean? Well, the course of a Christian's life is set and led by the Holy Spirit. He leads us. He dwells in us. He changes our desires and inclinations. The Christian's greatest desire is to please the Lord through loving obedience. And a Christian reads the inspired word to find out what pleases the Lord. Now, the Christian will be tempted to indulge the sinful nature, but the conscience and the prompting of the Holy Spirit warns that person not to take that course. When a Christian is tempted, he goes to the Holy Spirit, goes to God and says, please help me, I'm struggling, I'm deeply tempted, will you help me, give me strength to resist? That's what I think it means to be living by the Spirit. Though many failures may come, the Holy Spirit directs the course of a person's life and is doing the work. Over time, you know, and I've experienced this, temptations become less acute. Those things that we once loved, we no longer love. 
You might still be tempted from time to time, but those things no longer have a hold. They're no longer overriding and controlling. Gradually, a Christian is becoming more like Christ. And this is what the good fruit from a Christian tree is like in verse 22. He talks about this, this very familiar fruit of the Spirit. This is the kind of, I've got no time once again to talk about this, the kind of Christ-like character which is produced, which cannot be faked, which is coming from the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Verse 23, against such things there is no law because a person who does these things is far more pleasing to God than a person who insists upon circumcision and other unbiblical things like that. So I could say a lot more and I haven't got time, but let me say this. What kind of church do we want to be? The picture of a church in Galatians is of grace unleashed and doing its work, of inner change, not outward conformity, not restriction, but a heart that longs to do the will of God and is producing good fruit, which shows clearly that you are a Christian. We're not about making people kind of, you know, enforcing group behavior, keeping a law with no heart change. That would be pointless, futile, and unbiblical, and ungodly, and unkind. You know, we can make people jump through hoops very easily, can't we? Let's pray for that heart change in our hearts and the hearts of other people. May grace motivate us to be the kind of fruitful and holy people God wants us to be. I have to leave it there, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and Lord, I'm sorry if we ran out of time to look at it properly, many things, Lord, and it's my fault for not cutting it down, Lord, and being concise, but I do thank you, Lord, for what we, what we heard today, Lord. I pray that we would be all here fruitful Christians, and that our hearts would be changed, that our desires would be changed, that we would be led by the Spirit, and we would walk in step with the Spirit, and that we would truly know you, and not just be Christians on the outside, but true Christians. I pray that your love would set our hearts on fire, so that we would gladly do your will. We pray, Lord, that many, many other people would escape from legalism of whatever kind, law-keeping and observances, but actually their hearts would be changed. Lord, only you can do this work. Please, Lord, help us to be fruitful trees. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to sing our final hymn. Got any questions, please come and see me afterwards. So this is number 676, to God be the glory. After that, Chris is going to come and lead us.